What happens in a church when you have very different views and cultural backgrounds on what family even is, and the primary identity of your church is that you're a family? How do you start to navigate and overcome those? That's what we're going to talk about today on the All Things to All People podcast. All right, welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast with Michael Burns. I am Michael Burns, and we are continuing to go through the book All Things to All People. We are currently in chapter 13, talking about family, and uh, such a challenging topic, because as we started to uh, examine in the last episode, uh, man, there's just a lot of uh, different uh, presumptions and backgrounds and experiences and the way we grew up and the way we experience family that we bring in to church. And then we talk about the church is a family, but we mean very different things oftentimes. So we're going to finish up the chapter, get into that today. Uh, I do have a little bit of bad news. On the last episode, my wife joined us, and I said that she was going to be on this episode and finish off this chapter with us. And I wasn't kidding when I said she can be a challenge to schedule and uh, just had a crazy week this week. And I realized that it was going to be uh, much more realistic to finish off uh, this chapter by myself, which I know is uh, very disappointing. Uh, But it's the first episode I've done in a long time by myself, and so um, we will muddle on. But I I promise, uh, in as much as a human being can make a promise, that she is going to uh, do the next chapter, the next couple episodes, uh, with us as well. So uh, we'll we'll get to it here. Um, you know, I am in a Christmassy mood today. I don't know why it's the middle of July. I think it's because our uh, uh, oldest son, for some reason, brought his Christmas stocking that he still had in his bedroom, and he put it in my office today. So uh, you can kind of see it here, and it's got little jingle bells on it. You hear that, the jingle bells? And so uh, for some reason, all day I've been walking around my office singing, you know, just hear those sleigh bells ringling, ting, ting, jingling, too. Or is it jing, jing, jingling or ting, ting, tingling? Um, it's probably jingling, isn't it? Because you have jingle bells and not tingle bells. Um, tingle bells sounds like some kind of weird thing from some strange movie or something. I don't know. Um, That couldn't be less relevant and more random, could it? Um, Okay. So how about I just shut up talking now and we'll move into the idea of family. And so, you know, last time as we were getting into it, 
uh, just as a demonstration, uh, you could see just between my wife and I, just two people, not a church of 200 or 300 or 500, just two people, how we had very different uh, concepts of family that not only you know made it work on our part to build a family of our own, but even the way we perceive and approach church has been very different. And at times I'll be like, man, this is great. It feels like a family to me. And she's like, it's not so much to me. It's, it's more of a grind and more work on her part. So the question becomes then, we have these differences. How do we bridge the gap? How do we start navigating uh, these different views of family? And, and, and we can't know everybody, the depths of their heart, what they experienced as family, what they think is family. We gave the example in the last episode of the young lady who said it didn't feel like family because everybody took her out to eat. Well, how could people possibly know that? And the reality is you can't. You can't know what is in everyone's heart. Uh, so part of it is just being aware that when problems do arise, that you start to think, well, maybe this is a cultural issue and maybe we can ask some of those questions. But also I think we want to start talking about on a corporate level how we can start to look at some of the, you know, the archetypes of a culture, the main uh, tendencies of a culture and and the groups that we have and start to uh, be proactive about bridging those gaps. And just to be clear, I don't know if I have, uh, on this podcast at least, if we've discussed archetype and stereotype. So forgive me if we've already done this, but even if we have, maybe it bears repeating uh, just to be clear in the area of culture. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll use an example that I've used quite a bit lately. I, th I think it's helpful and makes these terms easy to understand. Is when you look at a cultural group, you can say, you know, there's certain common characteristics or certain tendencies or patterns that that group tends to fall into. So I come from Wisconsin. I grew up there. Heart and soul, go Badgers, go Bucks, go Packers, go Brewers. But, you know, when you think of Wisconsin, there are a couple of things that people tend to think of and associate uh, with people from Wisconsin. And so two of those things are people from Wisconsin eat cheese and drink beer, right? And that's just sort of the common way of thinking uh, about us Badger folks. And we feed into that. Our baseball team is named after people who make beer. And the fans of our sports wear big blocks of cheese on their heads. So we definitely feed into these archetypes. There's a truth to them. The average person from Wisconsin does like cheese and does drink more beer than your normal, typical person. And if you look at me as an example, I love cheese. If you go to my, you know, to my fridge right now, uh, we have a big drawer that's full of nothing but cheese. Uh, we have a cheese drawer. 
That just seems normal to me. I, I like all kinds of cheese. I always have to have cheese on hand. That's an emergency if there's not cheese. So I fit that archetype. However, can't stand beer. Don't like the taste of it. Don't really drink alcohol. Uh, all alcohol tastes like rotten grapes to me, especially beer. Just not the thing that I want to do. And so I don't fit that archetype. So that starts to then give us a window into what a stereotype is. Now, an archetype is when there is a general truth that can be helpful to understand a group. But if I then uh, act as though every member of that group must fit that truism and treat that person as though they do without giving them any room for you know uh, their own personality or differences or you know uniqueness then that's a stereotype so if someone you know here bought you a christmas gift it's a 12 pack of beer drink it like no i don't. <laughs> wrong assumption i don't fit that stereotype so archetypes can be helpful but we can't assume they're true in every case. Uh, so we have to use archetypes as a tool to help us understand, but not a universal truth. So let's dig into bridging the gaps and, and see how we can make our way forward, understanding that there's no, when you come to these cultural situations, they're complex. There's no one answer. There's no, here's the way to do it. So these are just some ideas and suggestions and discussion to maybe help us think about how to approach these topics. It's one thing to recognize these potential differences that a diverse community can have as a result of divergent cultural approaches and traditions. Being aware of the differences is important, but that only goes so far. What can we do once we've discovered these differing views and approaches? This is of particular importance, I believe, when it comes to the understanding of family. Being a family is such a central aspect of the purpose and meaning of the church that it can be incredibly problematic if we cannot come to a common set of assumptions and expectations. In the process of coming together, as we include a wide array of cultural worldviews and continue to form a new culture in Christ, Communication and education are a key starting point. None of the areas of cultural impact are simple or easy to bring together, and the issue of family can be daunting because it's so foundational. The church was formed by Jesus to be a family and operate as such, but we often bring so many different expectations and expressions of what that is exactly that it can feel almost impossible to bring all these different threads together in one group. So let's talk about the biblical view. The first thing we must ask for any bridge-building effort is whether there is a clearly defined biblical view on the topic. In this, our first case, Jesus made clear that his family of identity and security would be that of believers rather than the normally delineated family of blood relations, Mark 3, 31-35. The early church operated much more like a family than just a religious, religious organization as they devoted themselves to sharing all aspects of life together, including their wealth and possessions, Acts 2.42-47. The family of God should be our priority, and there should be a high standard of sharing in common everything we have. That means 
that the Western tendency towards individualism will often be at odds with the more Eastern-oriented view of family that we see in the New Testament. This is not to imply that if you grew up in a Western culture that your experience of family is sinful or invalidated, but it does mean that you might be called upon more than others in certain areas to adjust your expectation of what family is and how it should operate. The first obstacle, though, is that must be embraced by all is that when we enter God's kingdom, the brotherhood and sisterhood of believers becomes our family of priority and identity. The challenge for first century people was transferring their loyalty and identity from the group of their birth family to that of their the family of God. And that challenge is similarly faced by those from Eastern cultures today. The obstacle for many from Western cultures is letting go of our individualism and perceived rights. To join a one another focused group like that, like, like what we find in the pages of the New Testament. We see this challenge um, in the Twin Cities, for example, and I could give several examples here, but there's a rather large uh, Somali community in the Twin Cities and, and really not far um, really from where we live. And the uh, most of the Somalians in this area tend to live in uh, large groups together, large, you know, they kind of neighborhoods together. And so you find these communities, and they're very uh, rooted in Eastern culture, very family-first oriented, uh, and they really stay together as a pack. And so converting some an individual from that community is very challenging, because for them, that would mean giving up their family of priority and identity, and that's really true in most cases because um, the, you, uh, they, they tend to be of the Muslim faith. And so there's a, a very critical nature towards uh, converting or exploring Christianity. And so if you were to become a Christian, you would definitely be giving up your family. So there would be a, a very uh, costly transfer from one family to another. And the challenge is when the body of Christ is not this all-encompassing, you know, involved in every area of your life sort of family the way they have experienced family, then it's not really an equal trade. Even though we believe that Jesus is is better and bigger when the day-to-day manifestation of his family is a much weaker uh, kin group than the one they're coming out of, that's going to be a very difficult hill to climb. So that's just one example. Let me continue reading on here in the section of communication and education. When it comes to the practical solutions of coming together and joining many different views and expectations of being family, communication and learning are key. The small group setting is an ideal place to bring up and discuss these types of issues. The following questions might be helpful for learning about the assumptions and desires of each person in the group. Here are some sample questions. Uh, How did you define the boundaries of family when you grew up? When it comes to the church family, does your boundary of comfortableness 
include the entire global church, your entire local congregation, your small group, or some other marker. What do you believe are the primary functions of family? What are the primary functions of family within the body of Christ? What are some of the things within church life that most feel like expressions of family to you? What are some of the things within church life or culture that do not feel like family to you? What is the greatest obstacle for you in embracing the church as your family of priority and identity? What are one or two things the church could start doing that for you would make it feel more like the family that we all want it to be? I think for me, the clear answer would be that there would be more pecan pies being baked and sent my way. Um, that would really make me feel like family. Of course, the irony of that is, is I don't think we ate pecan pies growing up in my family, but I've adopted it into my way of life, and it's a deep part of my culture now. So uh, just throwing that out there uh, for people. As you have discussion like these, listen and look for ways for the group to embrace as many of these things as it can. There will be challenges, especially if some of the answers from some members are in direct tension with the answers from other members. Yet the largest obstacle is simply knowing what each other expects and feels. So as you have these discussions, the path, for, the path toward developing a common culture of what a family is in the body of Christ will continue to, to develop and be embraced by all. Keep in mind, however, that a community that is growing creates a dynamic where this will need to be an ongoing process. Each new person must be listened to and heard. And this is an opportunity to change, grow, and adapt the culture of the church family. Let's talk about the dominant group. Our marching orders as a Christian community are to be all things to all people. We must never lose sight of the truth that this is in that this is incumbent upon all disciples, regardless of our cultural background or level of influence within the group. There will, however, be a greater opportunity for adaptation and inclusion of others for those in the dominant culture. In Acts 15, a council was convened to work through the cultural clashes of the Jewish and Gentile Christians. The Gentiles were sent a letter asking them specifically to abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood and the meat of strangled animals and to embrace the Jewish and biblical standards of sexual morality rather than those of their own culture. That's Acts 15.29. Within the global church at that time, the Jewish culture was the dominant one. What's often missed is that while they did, did make some requests to the Gentile believers, the Jewish culture was the one doing the most adapting in this situation. It's unstated in this letter, but to even write the letter, they were willing to follow the biblical call to fully accept Gentiles into the family. This meant that they were prepared to adapt many of their customs of cleanliness, association, and dietary laws within the community. These were not easy things to change. And some continued to struggle with the changes for a time. But they were huge concessions in the quest to be all things to all people. All must adapt. But it starts with the dominant group. 
Who that is will vary from congregation to congregation, but in my own church context, it's the Western American white culture that is predominant. Readers in a different situation from my own can take the principles and apply them to their own situation. The dominant cultural approach to family in my church context tends to view family as a smaller unit that focuses on equipping the individual to go off and be independent, not needing to rely on a larger family unit. Many others find this approach greedy and selfish and have been raised with the expectation that family is a more extended concept wherein all members of the larger group will be willing to share and sacrifice to maintain everyone in the group. If the dominant group is to take the first steps to adjusting, then it is on them to examine their own preferences toward individualism and seek to learn about and appreciate the collectivist and inclusive culture of family. Let's talk about the restrictive view. Often in cultural situations, one group's approach is a bit freer. Well, another group tends toward a narrower or more restrictive stance. In Corinth, Paul guides them through different cultural stances on eating meat sacrificed to idols. One group felt that everything belonged to God, and since they were not personally worshiping idols by eating meat that had been sacrificed to the so-called God, then it was fine. Others took the restrictive view. Their conscience steered them away from participating in pagan rituals. Throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul hints towards trying to get the restrictive group to see things with a bit broader view, yet he is careful to never call them out directly to make them feel that their approach is sinful or overtly wrong. He calls the group with the freer approach to make sure they don't pressure others into something that would violate their conscience and to be willing to sacrifice their freedom out of love for others if it comes to that level. Thus, the approach for us in these types of situations seems to call seems to be to call the restrictive group toward freedom, if possible, while advocating for the laying down of rights for the freer position, if to do otherwise would truly bring spiritual harm to our brothers and sisters. In the case of approaches to family, the Western view is more restrictive. So they could go a long way toward unity by opening up to more of the Eastern approach. In my own household, this has borne much fruit. To force my tighter definition of family on my wife would be to cause her to act in ways that feel unloving. Her broader view has challenged me to widen my boundaries and expand my field of vision as to who is to be loved as family. It's been difficult, but I must admit, it feels closer to what God wants for his people. When it comes to interdependence versus individual responsibility, we've continued to work toward compromise between those two paradigms. If we err, we err toward her side, but we've found cases where my tendencies have helped set up healthy boundaries for someone that might be tempted to abuse the support and care from other family members. One thing that can really help clarify this aspect is the give or get question. If I move toward the other group's approach, or I'm including their culture as much as possible, will I be giving more or getting more? In this case, embracing the broader communal and supportive approach to family that seeks to share lives and resources with an expanded definition of the family group brings much more into our life than what we give up. 
On the other hand, if the Eastern group was asked to sacrifice their ways in favor of the Western-style approach, they would be giving up much and gaining little in return. Let's talk about heart language. This aspect of bridging the gap won't be a factor for all topics, but it can be a huge factor for some. When it comes to some cultural areas, one or both groups will have their customs or preferences, but overall, it's not a core aspect of the cultural life of that group of people and can be adjusted or retrained without a great deal of problem. At other times, an issue is deeply central for that culture, and it takes on the significance of what I call a heart language. It's something central to their identity and value system. In situations where a cultural variance is a heart language issue for one group, but not for the other, the heart language group should be conceded to as much as possible. Everyone values family in their own way, but the Western way of organizing and approaching family is not nearly as central as it is for other cultures. Westerners could easily embrace a church community that didn't even try to function as family. Easterners could not. They need a family in their life and will never be able to fully prioritize and commit to the body of Christ if it doesn't fulfill this role for them. Thus, in this area, the Eastern approach should be accommodated as much as possible. Now, let me interject here and say that's not to say that it's, it will be easy for those with a more restricted uh, sense of family or, you know, a more, well, I, I don't like it when people just drop in on by, but family can drop in on by. So, you know, I need to expand my concept of that and be more open to people just, hey, just come by the house, your family, come on in, you know, treating people like family in that sense, can be challenging when everything inside of you says, but they're not. And so you have to really retrain your mind in that area. So I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done and needs to be done. Let's talk about the compromise position. We should, I believe, seek to emulate much of the Eastern view of family. It is the approach that is the natural assumption of the biblical texts and one that fits in more easily with biblical principles in most respects. That doesn't mean that there is no compromise necessary. While moving toward a more collective concept of family and community, we must recognize that certain elements, such as showing up unexpectedly at someone's house and planning to stay for a while, can be off the charts difficult for some people. A wise group will work toward those positions. So it will be challenging, but it can be done. One of the simple things that I love, and this is more symbolic than anything, uh, but in the, the African churches, a lot of the African churches, not all of them, but a, a really good majority of them that we visited, uh, all the kids, for example, call everyone else besides their parents, auntie and uncle. And I just love that reinforcement in their mind that this is, this is family. Um, it's just a great great thing. And I know my, my wife has mentioned that before and loves that as well. In Acts 15, the church decided that they would ask Gentile Christians to absolutely avoid blood and meat sacrifice to idols. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth about 10 years later, he assumes that eating meat sacrificed to idols is something that should be considered but optional given the situation. And there's no mention of blood at all, as though that has ceased to be a concern. 
It seems that they were compromising, but had slowly moved toward the Gentile culture. And finally, the grace factor. Let's talk about that. One of the most important elements of grace is patience. This is absolutely vital in moving toward a culturally competent and transformed community. We must be willing to show grace to one another and value acceptance over comfort. When coming together as one, there will be times when the other group is insensitive or is not moving fast enough. This must be met with patience and love. Keep working toward an inclusive approach to family within your diverse church community, but never cease being patient and full of grace. It will almost never work for one or more groups to completely abandon their cultural identity and completely embrace another. Within a diverse community, we will often find a series of compromises coupled with the tolerance for variations among members within the group. If this aspect of life together is not given attention, it can cause many to feel that the church says they are family, but doesn't live it out. All the while, others in the congregation are quite happy that the goal of family togetherness has been achieved. We recently saw a case where the mother of a dear sister in a church passed away unexpectedly. People paid their condolences, prayed for her, and offered help, but not in the way that this sister, who was from a more Eastern-leaning culture, expected. The church felt like they were treating her as a family, but she didn't feel that way at all. Based on her expectations of family, she felt as though she had been mostly abandoned. In a case like this, the dominant group needs to be willing to learn. But grace would dictate that someone who may recognize the needs and expectations of the sister step forward and quickly educate the body on what they could do to make someone like her feel the love of the family. And I'll interject here again and say, uh, that's a great solution, but sometimes that's not always available. And uh, the, you know, the give and take, some of the challenge of being part of a diverse group is when you're surrounded by people of your own culture, they don't have to ask. They know what to do. But we have to be realistic that in a, in a diverse culture, people are not going to always know. And so we may have to voice our needs, which may go against the cultural value. You know, some cultures, like, you, you don't voice your needs. Uh, people should just pick up on it, or you just bear your cross and don't get your needs met. But we're going to have to learn to uh, voice those needs, or uh, the body is going to have to learn to ask those questions instead of just assuming that we know uh, what it will look like to be family in this situation. We may have to uh, carefully ask and say, what can we do? What would make you... Uh, what do you need? What would really make you feel the love of family here? And I, I know that's not as natural and intuitive as being surrounded by your own cultural group, but this is the challenge in the work of being all things to all people that God has called us to. Let me finish up the chapter here, one more paragraph. In this area, perhaps the most important factor is simply being aware of the divergent views, assumptions, and expectations when it comes to family. Once we're aware of these differences, we can begin to communicate and work toward a church that truly feels like family for all involved. It will never be completely comfortable and perfect for every person. But remember that staying in our comfort zone is a sure sign that we've moved outside the zone of being all things to all people. 
next time, as I said, my wife, uh, hopefully is going to join the podcast again, and we're going to get into chapter 14, where we talk about managing resources and oh boy, do we have different cultural background views on that. So that should be fun. Uh, wait for that. And again, it's not just, we're not just telling our story. We're using it as a, uh, as a way, as a window and a way to understand, uh, some of these cultural differences that we have in the church. So a uh, little bit of a shorter episode today. It always is when I'm by myself. Uh, I could just prattle on for another 20 minutes, but I'm sure you have things to do in your life. And, um, you know, sometimes it's nice to be let out of class early. Uh, let me say a few things here as we come to a close. Um, again, the all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. Please, uh, feedback, questions, um, encouragements, anything that if you want to contact, send uh, to that email. Um, if you uh, want to look further into this book or any of uh, the other books that I've written, uh, you can go to michaelburnsteachingministry.com. Uh, right now, it's that site is mostly populated with uh, the core books I've written, uh, Crossing the Line, All Things to All People, A Crown That Will Last, uh, Escaping the Beast, the new book, which has just come out on politics, allegiance, and kingdom. But I'm hoping that soon we'll have more um, articles and resources and even some videos and things like that that will be up there. Um, so please check that out when you get a chance. Um, and also... Do me a favor, if you can, go to, you know, Amazon, look up uh, some of my books, if you've read them or if you're listening to this one, and I'll leave a positive review on, on Amazon. That's a, a great deal of help. Um, you know, five-star reviews are great. If, uh, if you didn't like the book and you want to leave a one-star review, then don't leave it on Amazon. Just, uh, you can write me an email and, uh, tell me how much you don't like the book. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, whatever you think, but just, you know, positive reviews are very helpful. Um, so please do that if you get a chance, um, for all of, uh, the, the four books. Core books are not available on Amazon yet, but, uh, the other books are. So do that if you get a chance. Uh, we're going to end the show rolling out with, uh, you may have noticed, we had a, a new uh, song that we switched over to. I loved uh, Taste by Aaron Minor. Not Taste, sorry. Not Taste by Aaron Minor. Uh, and we'll bring that back at some point. But uh, have a new, uh, new theme song by De La Noise Productions made available to uh, the All Things to All People podcast. The song is called Imperial. Thanks uh, again to the De La Noise Productions. And that's going to play us on out for this episode. We'll see you next time on the All Things to All People podcast.